Welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where our goal is to help you find health and community through movement. I'm Molly Herford, a writer, coach, and yoga teacher. And I'm Peter Glassford, an endurance coach and kinesiologist. Every week, we're talking to athletes and experts who can help you lead your best active, adventurous life. Whether you're a gravel racer, a marathon runner, or you just got out on your first bike ride yesterday, we're here cheering you on. You can also visit us online at consummateathlete.com for coaching information and training tips, nutrition advice, yoga flows, bike skills, and more. And now, let's get into this week's episode hello hello welcome back to the consummate athlete podcast peter how's it going it's good we're almost through february so hopefully through uh whether it was a good or a, a less than good february we're through some of those midwinter blahs and and onward into what might be the makings of spring i feel like that is a bold statement that is going to be met with a blizzard by the time we release this in a day well i'm a big believer in groundhogs and it was a split decision this year with the two groundhogs that i follow i won't name them in case you're of different uh, groundhog ilk i'm trying to remember their names because i was just going to drop them but I, I only know where they're from not what their names are well, they're Willie and Phil. Oh, <laughs> now I've said it. Now I've, I've claimed my allegiance. I thought it was Pete, not Phil. There's a Pete somewhere, too. I don't follow Pete, though. That would okay. be weird. Yeah, I guess. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so possibly winter is over, but probably not. I'm trying to like uh, meter my expectations, I guess. Well, like, and so you, we had this article come out this this week. It was sort of like plummeting, pl plummeting motivation, right on the nose. And so, what 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 would someone expect if they clicked on this article? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's uh, it's definitely not just about training because I started writing it more based on actually like getting like work done and getting house stuff done and stuff like right, that. Right. Um, but it's it's really just kind of looking at the the reasons we might not be feeling motivated and sort of starting i think the big thing is starting with that health scan and making sure that like okay am i actually like healthy right now am i taking care of you know drinking enough water getting enough sleep uh you know resting enough recovering enough yeah lots of things it could be sodium is a yeah. big one eating, you know maybe eating a vegetable yeah something like that right have you made a change so I thought that was sort of a, an important place to start. And then... And I guess actually our last... Was that our last episode on Red S? Mm -hmm. um, yep. There's another spot. You know, maybe we're just underfueling, right? A lot of people are building up. They're doing their base, you know, one, two, or three right now. Um, you know, maybe you've intensified training. Uh, so there might be something around just you got to eat more, right? If you want to train more, that's sort of the catch. Uh, and a lot of times we try and do the opposite. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and then once you've kind of covered the like health bases, sort of thinking about... You know, there's always the go back to your why as far as like getting back to feeling motivated to do stuff. But I often find that advice, while it's very important and it works for a lot of people, for some people that just kind of falls flat. So I actually talked about my my personal favorite two things of like really leaning into the lack of motivation, like letting yourself just do nothing for a day or two if you can and like getting bored again, because I think, you know. This is me maybe soapboxing a little bit here, but, you know, we have our phones, we have our iPads, we have Netflix, we have Prime, we have Apple TV, Disney Plus, like a billion and one things. Uh, so, and I mean, Instagram alone, right? Like you can pretty easily be feeling demotivated and then just spend two hours scrolling Instagram. But what if you're feeling it's demotivated yeah. and you just don't do anything? Like right. you just kind of sit, maybe you have a journal out, but like you just sit. Right. 
I right, think, or, or read like a paper book or or something. Right? Yeah, I think pretty quickly, like sitting with yourself and like feeling bored for a while is going to quickly like bring you back to motivated again in a way that's kind of like the mindless scroll or the mindless like TV watching just won't. Yeah, and I think we, you know, there's all these like recovery gadgets and stuff, which I tend to be critical of. But you know, my general stance is pick one you you like or believe in. But I think that sometimes those things, you know, I even catch myself you know, doing something like this and, you know, rolling or, you know, I like the mobility stuff. So that's sort of the thing I've picked, but then you're, you know, you're maybe on phone or answering email while you're doing it. Right? And I think you're sort of missing the like secret benefit of all that stuff is, is not doing anything or, or, you know, breathing deeply or relaxing while we're, you know, whether it's your, your moon boots compression or ice bathing or all these things, right? Like sauna, you know, you can bring your phone into all these places now because they're so waterproof and, mm-hmm. you know, all this stuff. So yeah, try and do take an off day or take a recovery, right? Yeah. Not just for your body, for your brain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you've actually been using a new app and doing a bit more meditating. Yeah. I'm hoping to finally, have, well, we'll call it, I like to call it deep breathing, uh, with metrics, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we should really rename the chapter in our, deep, our book. Deep, deep breathing with metrics. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm hoping to have Marco from HRV for training on. So he has a great app that I use with a lot of clients actually called HRV for training. We've had Marco on many times, giving us updates on, uh, HRV and where we're at with that that technology and that sort of concept, but he has another app which I am blanking on. I can pull it up on my phone here, but it's it's basically a deep breathing app that guides you with some biofeedback. So it's showing you uh, your your heart rate rhythm while you're doing this guided deep breathing. So it's also guiding your breathing rate. It is called HRV biofeedback, and. Yeah, so it's been really good. And so it gives you a good like tally of how long you've been doing it. And then it also gives you some feedback as far as what was the HRV uh, while you're doing it, right? And so you can see if it's a higher HRV, you've generally like relaxed more, but you might have a lower one, say after a workout, right? Where you're more fatigued or or maybe you're stressed out. So I like it because there is that biofeedback aspect. You're getting feedback from the app on what is the physiological state. Right. So we've added a metric to your meditating. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll have Marco on to talk about that, but feel free to sneak in and get that there and we'll give Marco that plug. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, So on the topic of today's guest, uh, I loved this interview. Yes. You were very excited about it. It's about running. So I guess I'm not surprised. It's about running and triathlon. So uh, anyone who knows me knows I got my, my start in triathlon. My dad was in triathlon back in the 80s, like before triathlon was what it is today. Uh, and today's guest, Ian Fraser, uh, same thing. He was actually on the Canada national team, like back in the 90s. He did Ironman, like went to Kona and stuff back back when it was cool. <laughs> not nice. that it's not cool now, but just like back when triathlon was much like grittier, much smaller. Um, just much more like DIY. Some of the DIY stuff that we talk about in this episode is hilarious. Um, I I admit, like I just had such a good time talking to him about sort of the what's changed in the last thirty years in triathlon and in marathon. Uh, so he's also the race director for Run Ottawa, so one of the the biggest marathons, uh, really like in North America. Um, and yeah, we talk kind of all about what he's learned about marathoning over the years and. How and actually, you could you could maybe agree with this too. The iron, the marathon at the end of Ironman, easier than just doing a marathon. Yes. Um, I would say I walked away in better shape. I mean, both were were very challenging, but uh, I think because 
I was so tired at the end of Iron Man. Like I wasn't as drilled maybe if that makes sense like the last three miles of the marathon i did and this is years ago like 2008 maybe i just like and i was crippled for a long time whereas like i was riding mountain bikes like socially like fun but like i think we went maybe the day or two after yeah but like i couldn't walk i remember uh, like days after the marathon i couldn't walk i had to go to a funeral or something and my my grandfather was like 86 and he was just i remember him laughing it was actually one of my fondest members of my grandfather because he was so impressed with himself that he was beating me up and down stairs um yeah but anyhow i i would agree with that yeah yeah and if you want to hear more about iron man you can go back uh almost four years now probably it's like our it wouldn't be our first year. It would probably be like episode 50 or so as we're talking about things that we learned from doing from Iron doing Man Iron together. Man. Uh, but yeah, a good experiment. Good yes. experiment. <laughs> uh, yeah, this, this is a really, really fun episode. I hope everybody enjoys it as much as I did. There's a lot of really practical takeaways, but also Ian just has some really fun stories. Well, from... I guess for a lot of our listeners too, there's maybe some run goals this year, whether they're virtual or, or in person, imagine. Um, so I guess timely too, if you're trying to get, you know, some March motivation coming off of the February blahs. Definitely. Yeah. And actually as, as the race director for run Ottawa, we do get some inside Intel on what he thinks racing might look like for 2021 in Canada. So I think it's, it's really interesting. I'd say he's, he's very like glass half full. Uh, we talked through, you know, virtual has some serious benefits and I think it's, it's awesome. So yeah, without further ado, enjoy this chat with Ian Fraser. So you have been a triathlete uh, from way, way back. Um, how did you How did you find your way into triathlon? I, I'm always very excited about hearing how people came to the sport. It's kind of interesting. So you know, you're you're making me think way back in time, which is good and bad because I'm sure that my historical recollection of some of this stuff will be inaccurate. But uh, and I may make some of it up. But <laughs> I love it. I love it. Embellish. <laughs> No, so it's kind of interesting, you know, like I, I started running as a kid when I was about eight years old. So I started running track when I was a kid. Um, and, you know, the, my actual sport growing up that I played, if you can call it a sport, it was golf. So that was that was what I was most keenly interested in from about the age of 10 to 12 until I probably was about 20. And I kind of stopped um, competitively running probably from the ages of about 12 to about 20. Um, and then a strange thing happened. I think I want to say maybe I was 19 or 20. I got into a car accident and totaled my car. And I decided with the money, insurance money that I got that I, I wanted to buy like a high-end bicycle because triathlon was sort of a new thing at that point in time. So this is probably like 1984, 1985. And it was kind of exciting. I had never really ridden a bike before. I couldn't really swim. Um, definitely couldn't swim. But then I started using <laughs> this bike to sort of commute to and from a summer job that I had. Um, and I loved it. And then I just started riding more. And then I decided, OK, well, I'm going to learn how to swim. So I went like to public swim at Carleton University, which is where I went to school. And I couldn't swim like a full length of the pool. So I would like breaststroke and then I would try to swim a little bit more. And then it just kind of evolved from there. Like I, I got into the sport. Um, 
like hugely sort of in the late 80s and I was terrible. I was always a really good runner, but I was like terrible. So overall, I wasn't winning anything locally. I wasn't even coming like in the top 30 locally in those days. And so I took a little bit of a hiatus from university. I went to the UK to live in London for a couple of years and I spent a lot of time running there. That was kind of all I could do. Um, so I ran a lot while I was there and I came back to to Ottawa, back to Canada, and I joined a master swim program as soon as I got back. And that was like, I don't know, that was like a, a revelation, like a kind of a, you know, a quantum moment where I just, I just sort of realized how valuable like that kind of preparation and that kind of an environment was. And things just kind of took off from there. I just kept getting better and better at it. And, and over the course of about two years, I was kind of amazed at how I had progressed, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, I love it. So you were, I mean, you were in triathlon in the glory days. Like I always talk about, I said it to you, like my favorite book is Matt Fitzgerald's Iron War, all about Mark Allen and Dave Scott. Yeah. I have all these pictures of like my dad racing. I actually blame my dad's triathlon habits <laughs> for like my terrible triathlon habits when I ah. first got into it because he, you know, he raced in like a speedo and that was it so like i spent my first like three years in cycling riding in like a swimsuit because no one told me that bike shorts were a thing i just seen these pictures of my dad it's <laughs> so totally true and so you know those were the maverick days of of the sport and it really was uh new it was cutting edge um and it was um it was something uh that was far more participant, sorry, far more um, competitive oriented, as opposed to participant oriented, which it Mm -hmm. is today, which I think is great, right? I mean, the sport is still a small niche sport in the grand scheme of things. I mean, it's not Formula One, it's not soccer, it's not uh, the NFL, but it's grown a lot. um, And the industry around the sport has grown a lot as well. Um, And I think it's really matured and grown up. But those were, you know, the Wild West days of the sport. Absolutely. I mean, even as an elite athlete, um, you know, prior to having many sponsors at all, I used to race in a Speedo as well with no top mm-hmm. on, you know, like yeah. you know, people don't do that anymore. Like that's just not done. Um, and it was it was exciting to be a part of that sort of growth experience. And frankly, that colored my life really in every way, shape or form um, for the next three decades, I would say, you know. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I have to ask, like, what is like the goofiest piece of gear that you had? Because I feel like if there's one thing triathlon triathletes from like the early 90s had, it was amazingly weird gear. So a couple of really weird things that I had from those days. So, you know, the first version of the aero bar was highly radical. So, of course, you know, even going back to the late 80s, we had these triangular version of bars that weren't anything like what you see today. You know, they were not a, an integrated bullhorn with extensions. There, there was none of that, right? They were these weird looking triangular things that were really new on the scene. And triathlon made an, a technological impression on cycling generally, which still is uh, is part and parcel of what happens today in the world of professional cycling. So I had the strangest looking sort of aero bars you could ever imagine. Um, the other thing at that time, for those of us that couldn't afford real disc wheels, which, which you know, were not as easy to find today or then as they are today. So we had these sort of snap-on zip wheels that were like a really sort of like, <laughs> 
piece of 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 nylon that had a like a rigid rim around it that clipped onto plastic clips onto your standard wheel so it looked like you had a disc wheel on they were like a wind cover they were horrible they'd fall off and you know they got caught in my cassette at one point and they were just (laughs) disgusting so (laughs) we we had those but we also learned to do like a lot of innovative things in those days too so you know for example in the sport of triathlon like like, you know, everybody has a number belt that they put their, their race number on, right? So it's yeah. a, a little clip-on thing. Well, we didn't have those in in, in the early days. I mean, they, nobody manufactured those. So I used to take old pairs of underwear, cut the underwear out, and just have the waistband itself <laughs> that was elastic, and I put safety pins into it, right? I love that. Yeah. Well, and it's funny. That's actually what I did when I started triathlon, partially because I was broke and partially because, I mean, you know, even 13 years ago, so when I got into it, there's there wasn't quite as it wasn't as easy to order a number belt off Amazon or something as it is today, right? You can That's only true. order books off Amazon then. Uh, so I remember I did that with with like elastic I got at the craft store to make my first number belt. Uh, and it's it's funny I remember actually in cycling I feel like indoor trainers haven't like weren't really that popular until recent years. But I remember being you know three or four years old and I remember my dad riding an indoor trainer because triathletes were into it. So I feel like triathlon has always been at this weird cutting edge of like, we're going to be doing the weirdest stuff, but it's going to catch on. (laughs) Well, it's really, it's so true. And I think back like, so one of my early product associations was with uh, the bike brand Cervelo. And, um, you know, the the two founding partners of Cervelo, Gerard Roman and Phil White, um, uh, really revolutionized the sport of not just triathlon, but cycling in general with their designs. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I I was uh, friends through school and school friends with Phil White long before he ever knew what a triathlon bike or a bicycle really was. <laughs> and prior to me really getting involved in triathlon. And so, like, I was really fortunate to be the first elite athlete to ever ride one of their uh, triathlete to ever ride one of their bicycles uh, competitively. And I got to watch some amazing and incredible technology be developed by a Canadian company that literally stood the cycling um, world and the cycling industry, you know, on its head upside down. And I think um, the real impact of the work that they did I think it's kind of well well enough understood by most people in the in the sport of triathlon, but it was incredibly profound, and that was such a cool experience, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, this is maybe like a weird question or like weird side tangent, but I mean, you have a lot of people getting into triathlon, marathons, you know, racing bikes and stuff. All you know, kind of nowadays, we'll say. Is there anything you kind of wish they'd kind of take from? these early days of racing, I feel like it was punk rock is not really the right term, but it was much scrappier back then. And I think that's actually a positive in a lot of ways. It is a positive in a lot of ways. And I think like, like anything new, it has a, it, it typically has a rough edge around it, right? So there are pioneers of the sport that push technology, they push uh, event organization, they push a number of fronts. And so as they push those fronts forward, they realize that they can successfully make a business or a career uh, or a living out of it. And so as soon as that starts to happen, then then I like to sort of characterize it as like there's a, a rules formation around how this works. So now there are things that are, yes, important, but stifle that kind of edgy kind of piece about any kind of new new development, right? So mm-hmm. things like, oh, insurance, 
getting permission to put events on, <laughs> you know, little things like that. Like I remember like the, the company that I owned um, prior to coming to run Ottawa called Somersault Events, um, you know, I, I bought a portion of that company, uh, you know, um, a decade ago. But, you know, I'd worked with them for a number of years, but this is an organization that goes back, a business that goes back 30 years or more. And in those days, you know, the original founders, I remember having tons of conversations about permits. What are you talking about? Insurance. We would just go and put a race on, you know, Mm -hmm. we would just go into the middle of the woods somewhere and put a trail run on. We would put a triathlon on, on any swimmable body of water. And so... You know, that idea that you could just do these pop-up events everywhere and make them successful and have people kind of hear about them word of mouth was kind of a really kitschy, quirky way to kind of, you know, build a sport around. And it's kind of sad to see that go. So to answer your question, I think like we have rules around how we organize events. We have rules around technology and all of that sort of thing that are important to keep people safe. I get that, but I think a little more creative thinking, a little more out of the box thinking, changing up some of the, just some basic things about the event. Why does a triathlon always have to be a swim, bike, run? Um, why are the formalities around uh, around some of those those dynamics so important going forward? And, and should they be changed? Should we be looking for something that's a little more out of, out of the box, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And I mean, I think you and I kind of started talking about this last week when we were talking for that article I was working on, but I think COVID is going to change the way that uh, events are put on. And maybe, I mean, the insurance stuff will all obviously still be in place now, but I do think we're going to see a return to a lot more grassroots stuff kind of getting added in just as we can't have these huge races for the next year. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's 100% true. I think you're going to see two things happening. You're going to see, um, polar opposites. So you're going to see a number of events disappear and a number of event series disappear who cannot stay financially viable and, and, and stay alive. And you're going to see those events absorbed by larger players uh, mm-hmm. or just disappear altogether. And then you're going to see at the, at the sort of thin edge of the wedge, you're going to see a bunch of new people um, becoming race organizers or race inventors or event eventers. Or you're going to see a whole bunch of really small grassroots things pop up um, that are maybe a little different in terms of format, a little bit uh, unfamiliar, a little bit interesting. So I think you're going to see things on on both ends of the spectrum. It's going to be really cool to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we sort of have a chance to kind of remake some of this stuff, which is, is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think to me, the, the other thing I kind of think about when I think about you know, marathon and triathlon and everything 30 years ago is this idea that you didn't have to have all of this really specific gear to get into it. Like, you know, my dad raced in his running flats with, you know, the cages for his shoes on the bike. He didn't switch shoes and, you know, he didn't have an aero helmet and he raced, like we said, in a Speedo, which he is not going to appreciate me bringing up in a podcast. (laughs) Uh, Constantly bringing up on this podcast. I know, right? (laughs) He, He drank Gatorade or like orange juice. You know, he he didn't need three bikes for, for what he was doing. He didn't need eight different pairs of shoes for whatever he was doing. Um, I think now everyone has the sense that to do a certain sport, you need to have this huge mountain of gear and like every single thing to check off your checklist before you can do it. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a really, really good point because it's, it's true. You don't need to have those things. I think the trappings of the sport are important to people um, insofar as they sort of create motivation 
Um, but there were a lot, there were a lot of things that, you know, we did, for example, just a, a, a funny thing, like we didn't have gels when I first started out. Right. So, right. you know, what, you know, we, we used to take, I used to take, um, chocolate pudding and I would put it in, um, sandwich bags, not the Ziploc kind, but the kind that you could tie into a knot on one <laughs> end. And so I would put, like, I would have this little baggie of, of pudding and then I would just bite the end off the baggie, the corner of the baggie, and I would just shoot the pudding into my mouth. And oh so, my gosh. You know, like I, I didn't, I didn't think of this, oh, I'm going to make my own gel. Well, there were no such things as gels until, you know, Power Bar made its first sort of gel. And there was a company in, in the UK called Lepin that used to make a, a thing, a product called Squeezy, that was probably the first gel type product on the market. But we used to make our own stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. I used to eat baby food yeah. um, as a fuel source, right? Yeah. Now I hope to see some of that kind of creativity sort of sneak back in. And I think it actually is like, you see a lot of people doing the baby food thing now. Yeah. Now, now the baby food's all like super fancy and organic versus like <laughs> yeah. the, the girt or stuff, but you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, so the other thing that we talked about was this idea that you and I both agree that the marathon itself is harder than doing an Ironman. Okay, you yeah, have to unpack this. Explain to me your thoughts on it. Oh, you know, the, the, the thing that I find sort of most um, challenging about running a really good marathon is uh, are the two two aspects that you have to bring together. Obviously, um, the physicality of what you're doing, and I'll talk about that in a second, but also sort of the mental focus that you need um, to sort of push through that, right? And, you know, when you get to the marathon phase of an Ironman, you are, um, you know, in a, in a much drained physical state. So you are, uh, you've just completed a 180k bike ride, you've swam for 3.8 kilometers, you barely even remember you swam because it was so long ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, you know, you hit the run in a much different physical and mental state. So you're never really able to, to run that marathon at your full muscular potential, right? So there's mm -hmm. always limitations. So your limitations are your, your nutrition and hydration levels. So the physical pounding on the ground is not the same in that marathon you run at the end of an Ironman versus a standalone marathon. And you're always in the in the standalone marathon, I think, pushing your the limit of your physical ability. So you're right on the edge of that physical ability. And with that comes a really heightened sort of mental state that you're in where that traditional wall that you hit that everybody talks about, you know, around 30 or 32 kilometers um, is really profound mentally. And that's mostly based on on what's happening physically. You hit a number of little walls uh, or fences, I like to call them, in, in a marathon that you run at the end of an Ironman, um, and they're different. They're generally based on, uh, on sort of your nutrition and hydration state at any given time. But in a marathon and an Ironman, you probably hit maybe three to five fences that you go through, and you have to kind of hop over them mentally, get past them physically. But the overall... Uh, effect on your body is not the same. So I look at it also like this. When I finish an Ironman and I'm done and I wake up the next day or I go to bed that night when I'm finished, I feel like I have the flu. When I run a marathon and I go home and I'm about to go to bed, try to go to sleep, I feel like I've been beaten with a baseball bat. So those are kind <laughs> of two different things, right? <laughs> I like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, an excellent analogy. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, but I mean, so you went from triathlon into a marathon as your business. You are the yep. Run Ottawa race director. Um, just very quickly, how did you end up in that position? So that was kind of weird. So back in the summer, early summer-ish of 2019, um, you know, it had become kind of public knowledge that my predecessor um, had had uh, retired, decided to move on uh, in that spring. And there was a search firm in Ottawa that was looking for a replacement for him. And I, I kind of seen this and uh, I didn't really think anything about it. And then two people actually who shall remain nameless kind of approached me and said, you know, you should really do this. And I'm like, I can't do this. You know, I run an event business already that I own. I own, um, you know, a specialty retail bike store and I own a coaching business as well. I am like mad, crazy busy. I wouldn't even know how to uncouple, um, you know, my business life to be able to do this. This is a, you know, the executive director at Run Ottawa is a full time. Um, it's a big job. Mm-hmm. And so it would, it would, I'd have to transform my life. So no, actually, it, hang on for non-Canadians, myself included. Can you just explain Run Ottawa as just like, it's a big honking deal. Okay. So yeah, I will. Ex- and I'll explain this in the, in the typical <laughs> Canadian humbleness, right? So, you know, this Run Ottawa um, does a number of different things. So the one thing that most Canadians and some Americans know about what we do is we produce Tamarack Ottawa Race Weekend, which is the largest running event over multiple days in Canada. So at its apex or peak, um, uh, going back about six or seven years ago, we had 48,000 people participating in that weekend. Okay. Um, we're still well over 30,000 in that regard. And by whatever measure you kind of look at, we are either the, depending where you look, the seventh, 11th or 14th largest running event in North America. So, you know, if you look at, at your side of the border, where you come from, we would be among the largest running events in the United States as well. Not only that, we put on about depending on how you look at it, about 20 other smaller events a year as well. Um, and one of the other things that we're uh, not super well known for, but one thing that we do with great pride is we do the operations and logistics for the Canada Army Run, which is an event of about 20 to 25,000 participants. So we, it's a big deal. It's a big organization. So that's what we do. So going back to this, this process of looking for a new executive director, you know, I got convinced that I should that I should you know apply for the job. So I got an interview with the search firm that was was uh, guiding the process. So I went for my first interview, and it was kind of interesting. Job sounded pretty cool. I already obviously live in Ottawa. I knew all about Run Ottawa from an outsider's perspective. I had run as a as a pacer, um, a pace bunny for years in the event. I think I did my first national capital marathon. It was called back in 1985, maybe or 84, 86, somewhere in around there. So I knew, I mean, obviously this was an integral part of the community that I grew up in and that that is my home. So I go to this first interview, seems pretty cool. I don't really have any interest in the job after I leave it. Um, And they're kind of, you know, they say, well, you know, we're interviewing a bunch of people still. And uh, if you're successful to go through the next round, you'll have a a meeting uh, with the board of directors. So I'm like, okay, so I literally think nothing of this. I don't even care. <laughs> I go on and a week passes and, and I get a call, you know, you, you would, the board would like to interview you. I'm like, oh, okay, great. 
So I go to this, this interview with the board and now I'm intrigued. I thought it was really cool. I really liked the people that sat on the board at that time. I knew a number of them. Ottawa was a small city, so I probably knew uh, quite well at least four people on the board at that time. And it just, there was a feeling when I went into that room that was really kind of special. So I finished that interview and now I'm kind of thinking, hmm, okay, I kind of, I'm, now I'm interested. How am I going to rework my life, blow my life up, should I be fortunate enough now to maybe get this job? So I have a bunch of awkward conversations with my business partner and my business partners, and I kind of let them know that I'm looking at this and I'm, I don't know if I'm going to get it or whatever, and now I kind of want it. So, <laughs> you know, then I, yep, yep. yeah, now I want it. And so I, I wait to hear if I'm going to get another interview because the next part of the process is a, a final interview with the board. And I wait and I wait and I wait and I get the interview. And it's a really rigorous interview. I can't remember how long it took, but it felt like it took days. It was just really intense. I had a piece of work to do as part of the interview process that I spent probably 60 hours working on. And so I go for this interview. I think it goes really well. And then now I can't wait to figure out if I've got the job or not. So, you know, the search firm is in touch with me and they're like, yeah, they're going to make their decision in the next couple of days by Friday. On Friday, I don't hear anything. Um, and I'm like, oh, no, I didn't get the job. So obviously I got the job and I had to, <laughs> <laughs> I had to make, you know, a whole bunch of um, pretty profound um, at the time profound kind of emotional decisions about changing the direction of my life. I, I literally had to sort of blow up my work and professional life to make this happen. And I had to think long and hard about if that was something I was willing to do. Obviously, uh, it was a big decision that I had to make sort of, uh, you know, with family um, as part of a pivotal piece around that. So, um, yeah, that's how I got here. Okay. And so throughout all of this, I mean, you know, obviously you're not racing as an elite triathlete anymore, but are you still racing? Are you still running? What's, what's your deal yeah. training wise? And how are you balancing that? Cause this seems really stressful. <laughs> I guess it does. So, so, so to some degree, like when I retired as a, as an elite level athlete and I'm air quoting retired here, you can't see that, yeah. but you can hear that. Um, I was probably like 1997, 1998. Um, and it was time for me to move on at that point. Uh, so I did a number of different things. Like I, I was in the restaurant business for a couple of years. Um, but fairly quickly I reconnected with this, the world of endurance sports. So I started, um, a coaching business right away, probably in 1999, 2000, um, that was quite successful at the time. And so a lot of the work that I did as a coach back then, um, you know, required that I was physically active. I would group ride with, with groups of athletes. I would run with groups of athletes and I would, I was a, a, you know, a recreational participant. So I did half a dozen triathlons a year. I did a couple marathons, you know, I would always be the three hour pacer for the national capital marathon back in those days. And, um, so I was always just like staying active and to be clear about my athletic prowess, I was probably not the most um, diligent at my training um, for the level that I raced at. I was probably not uh, the most dogmatic or the most focused. 
you know, I, I can thank my parents and grandparents. I think I have um, incredibly awesome genes that have nothing to do with me as a person or how I <laughs> use them or anything like that. But I say that because that kind of carried me along for a couple of decades until I started to get old, which I am now. And, you know, it was I was always I was always fit enough and ready to do pretty much anything. And, you know, I would be able to go and run a good 10K, run a good marathon, do the odd Ironman, even if I didn't train particularly well for it. I could get through it. And so that sort of engagement and that training aspect was embedded in my work life and also something that I stayed connected with just because it was, I, I lived that world every single day. So it was pretty easy for me to keep training, even though I put virtually no structure into my training over the past 25 years. Like it's just been that kind of stuff. If I felt like you know, one week riding 600 kilometers on my bike because there were a bunch of great rides to go on with friends, I would do it. Mm -hmm. If all of a sudden, you know, I was going to run a marathon and I, the longest, you know, my biggest running volume week was 20 kilometers for the past uh, two months, I'd go and run a marathon, you know, I would just mm -hmm. do it. Yeah, which I think is from, you know, what, a decade and a half, two decades of putting in the structured right. work and doing all of that so you can. Uh, that's and that's, Yeah, that's and, and that was that I, I, I lived off of that time, right? Like, so, you know, physiologically, I was able to trade off of that sort of relationship that I had in that previous life, right? Yeah, uh, which actually might lead us into this next question I wanted to ask you about the biggest newbie marathoner uh, mistakes that you, <laughs> you've seen. And I feel like, well, maybe just showing up at the start line, which... I have totally done. So any mistake that you're about to list, I'm going to be able to be like, yep, done that, done that, done that. Uh, but what are some of the big ones you see? So, you know, I cannot overstate um, the don't use new equipment on oh, race yes. day, right? And, mm -hmm. oh, you know, the obvious thing is, you know, don't go to the expo and buy a brand new pair of shoes and go, I'm going to run in these tomorrow. Don't do it. But like subtle things. So, for example, I did prior to one national capital marathon that I was a, a pacer acting as a pacer in. I wore a new pair of socks that I bought and I put the socks on and I hadn't washed the socks yet. And I don't know what was like impregnated into the sock, whether it was a chemical from the manufacturing process. But I got like like a burn on my feet that was like um like like a chemical burn and it was oh. fierce and it was horrible and i thought yeah that was a pair of socks like i never really thought about a pair of socks so i mean that sort of whole idea of like just don't 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 use anything new and don't change your routine you know the morning of or the day before or two days before don't all of a sudden make you know massive lifestyle changes don't become a food <laughs> overnight don't uh you know don't decide you're going to sleep in a tent in your backyard. Don't, you know, just do, live your life the way you normally would. If you have a couple of glasses of wine for dinner every night, have a couple of glasses of wine. If you don't have glasses of wine, don't drink a half a bottle before the night before. You know, it's just like, like common sense things, you know, don't decide that you're going to eat a really high fiber breakfast the morning of the marathon. We typically don't do that, right? Like mm -hmm. just we kind of think like if a little change is supposed to be good, a big change will, will be really good. And it doesn't mm -hmm. work that way. And those are simple things, but I see them, you know, in my years as a coach, my, my over two decades as a coach, I've seen 
really smart, intelligent people real, do really dumb things in the lead up to their their sort of special event, right? Yeah. No, so this this fiber breakfast thing leads <laughs> me to one point that like I get really like I find really funny is that there are a lot of newbies who will eat oatmeal the morning before like the morning of a race. Yeah. And they normally don't eat oatmeal, but they've read that oatmeal is a thing that athletes eat before the race. And I'm like, yeah. you can't do that if you've never done it. <laughs> <laughs> that is fiber. That is not going to go great for you. Uh, no. And as you know, as you know from our last talk, I love getting into the the nitty gritty part of the marathon, which is the porta potty situation. So. It's totally true, right? And it's like if you're going to try oatmeal for the first time, there probably aren't enough porta potties in the world to help no. you out on this morning. You know, <laughs> you're done. You're finished. Um, you know. And, but exactly. that said, you know, in, in our previous chat, like we talked about things like that and we said, you know, like the first bathroom that you see on your way to the race in the morning, you know, whether it's uh, a porta potty specifically, don't get focused on that. Like if you're staying in a hotel, use the first hotel bathroom that you can find on the way to the race start, find another hotel, go into the bathroom, even if you don't need to go, but try to use the bathroom so that mm-hmm. by the time you get to event central, you know, you, <laughs> the chances of you needing to use a porta potty will be uh, less likely. And I think there's some, you know, law of physics that no matter how many people are in the event and no ma- matter how many porta potties the organizers bring, it's like 1.75 times not enough, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. exactly. Now, I, do, I have a funny marathon story about porta potties or the lack thereof. So, hit me. <laughs> I, I want to say like, maybe 2012. Um, I go to run the Paris marathon and we're staying like really close to the start line and I can run over to the start line from where we're staying in an Airbnb. It's awesome. Like I hit a little cafe, bang back a shot of espresso. I get to near the start line and I'm like, I have to go to, I have to go to pee. And I'm like, Oh yeah, of course, here we go. So I look for a porta potty and I don't find one. And I start, I'm going to go look for a bathroom up the street. I've got some time before I get into my corral. And I see this like water kind of like running down a street corner and, and Paris Marathon is 50,000 people in it. And I'm right near the start corral. So obviously there's a ton of activity and I kind of go up around the street corner. It's on a bit of an incline and I turn the corner and that water is not water. It's, it's urine. And there are probably 300 people on the space of about a maybe block and a half that are just peeing up against the side of the building. And this is just like women, men, everybody. And it's just flowing down the street. And I'm like, I know people let their dogs crap all over the sidewalks in Paris, but this is crazy. So, you know, when in Paris, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, they didn't really worry about the, you know, the number of porta potties that were there. So mm-hmm. it's kind of an interesting revelation. That is amazing. <laughs> it was pretty cool. That's great. I, yeah, that's that's. I love in Europe the porta potty. So they have like the men's urinals that are just like <laughs> you're like, oh, is that a sink? Nope, not a sink. Nope. nope. That's that's. Yep. There's a lot of dudes peeing in there right now. <laughs> a weird thing to get used to in European events. So maybe this is good advice for someone who's thinking about racing in Europe. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like you know you have to take those cultural sensitivities into into your race preparation and planning. Yeah, for sure. Um, And the other thing I wanted to talk about is the hectic start-finish area in a race, because I think a lot of newer runners, and honestly, even veteran runners, kind of 
make the mistake of like they get into the race expo area they're like all of a sudden they're like kind of heading for their corral their family is in tow but suddenly their family is getting like swept off by a wave but they're maybe like still holding their bag or like wearing their sweatpants or you know all of these things and they don't even really get to say goodbye because they're like herded off and now it's like this really stressful thing um how can someone de-stress the beginning and end of their marathon? Yeah, it's a super, super question because I think it's like a, about preparation and knowledge. So, you know, I got into this habit in the world of triathlon long ago as a, as a new competitor and later on, you know, as a serious competitor of understanding the race venue itself. So in every intricate detail. So, you know, when you go pick up your race kit, even at, at uh, you know, Tamarack Auto Race Weekend with 30,000, 40,000 people, you can still have a really good reconnaissance of what those corral areas look like, what the staging area looks like, and sort of take the time to sort of visualize and walk yourself through what it's going to look like on race morning with the 40,000 runners and, you know, an equal number of uh, friends and loved ones along the side of the road. So, you know, visualize your, your physical pathway into your corral. Where is your corral? Where is a really good spot nearby where you can say goodbye to your family? Where is a good spot for your family to kind of watch that start? And you can do that one, two, three days away from the race, especially if it's a city that you live in. Um, mm -hmm. And you can be perfectly well prepared and you can kind of provide your family with all of that information um, you know, before, before they ever get down to the venue. Right. And it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I didn't really have a lot of family ever come watch me when I was racing. I come from a small family and most of them didn't live around or didn't travel. But, you know, when I would bring my mom to events from time to time back in those years, you know, we would always have this sort of meticulous reconnaissance and be like, okay, so this is the venue. This is where you should be. This is where I'm going to be at a certain time. We'd lay that all out beforehand so that, um, you know, so that she knew exactly what to expect. And I didn't have to worry about her on race day because, you know, a caring family member who's running is going to be as concerned with all the people that are there spectating as they are sometimes with their own day. And so, you know, doing that pre-preparation is really, really important. And also the other thing to make it kind of fun is, is if you can, you know, get your family involved in the volunteer side of the event too. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I remember one of my fondest moments. I raced uh, one of the three years I raced in Kona as a, as a professional. The last year that I was there, my mom was working in the transition zone and actually handed me my bike when I came out oh. of the water, which was super cool, you know? And um, very lucky that she didn't mess up that transition because that would have made yeah, well, a really yeah. awkward Thanksgiving. <laughs> but I think like that made that made it. And I think, you know, certainly at our events, there's lots of opportunity for family and friends to get involved on the volunteer side. And that really embeds your family, um, like into the process as well. And that that's another point where you don't really have to worry about them. And mm -hmm. I think that's key. So uh, you, you can really enhance everybody's experience with a little bit of pre-preparation and planning. Yeah, absolutely. I also admit when I was a broke early, uh, early triathlete, I would actually like try to score free entry with having my dad be a volunteer and it actually worked a fair fair number of times for like local events and he loved it too so yeah you know. it's a great point right and and it's you know going back earlier to the first part of our discussion you know a lot of the the things that we talk about in those early days were about this community right mm -hmm. and about you know, just kind of getting whatever work needed to be done to get the events off the ground. And if somebody was standing around on race morning, you put them into action, right? And so, 
even in our well-organized corporate large events that we do, there's still room for those little micro interactions, right? That can make a big difference in how somebody experiences the event or some how somebody as an outsider perceives the event. Yeah, yeah. And you and I talked about this, you know, as COVID has kind of forced a lot of events to go virtual. And I mean, Run Ottawa is going to be virtual again this year. It's also taught us a lot about like what people actually want out of their marathons. And I think yeah. a lot of people don't necessarily take advantage of all of the the kind of pr- the buildup to the marathon. It's just like this looming one day thing. And I think it could be so much more even when we get back to normal in-person races. Oh, that is such a good point because, you know, you often hear about, about, you know, newbies to any endurance sport, you know, putting so much emphasis on the, on the day. Right. And so Mm -hmm. everything is about how my day is going to go, forgetting that there was this massive process that led up to it. And, you know, we, you and I talked a lot about and the importance of the process and, and how sometimes it's it's equal to or perhaps more than the actual event itself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and COVID highlights that fact, not to take anything away from our fantastic Tamarack Virtual Ottawa Race Weekend, but you and I talked about the real importance of that journey, right? And the preparation and all the things that that added to, to your life, to your community, to the life that you have with your family and your friends. And I think if more people focus on that aspect post-COVID, man, we're going to just have like such an incredible event experience going forward that'll be uh, one of the many, I think, positive byproducts of this horrible last 12 months. Yes, for sure. And so on that note, can you just tell everyone a little bit about the the virtual event and where they can all they can find it and get all the details? <laughs> That's well played. I like that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... <laughs> So Tamarack Ottawa Race Weekend and Scotiabank Ottawa Marathon are um, moving to uh, a virtual event again for 2021, as we did in 2020. And following up on those sorts of things we were talking about, just this idea of of the journey, we've really tried to highlight things like um, getting some great coaching through our partners at Run Coach to be able to get you to the start line of your virtual event. Um, looking at how you can be a part of our charity community by working with our Scotiabank Charity Challenge and a couple of interesting things we're also going to add into the charity mix as well. Um, You know, figuring out who you're going to run with um, virtually, the people that you share your running stories with, how you post on social, how you you become part of a a bigger community that has a sort of a bigger mission and vision uh, built into it. So those are really important. So you can go and find us at runottawa.ca. You can go in there and enter our virtual event. Right now, uh, our events are 39 bucks. Um, Not bad for some accountability for the next few months. Seriously, for some free coaching, for some motivation that goes through our partner at Modigo. Um, for being part of a really immersive experience. I think it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can go there and, and find us there. Uh, you can find us on social as well and, and come and be a part of what we're doing. Come and join our community um, because once we move through COVID and we go back to in-person events, um, we want you to be a part of what we do from now on and going forward. 
Oh, I love it. Ian, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me about all of this. This was so fun. <laughs> it's been a pleasure, Molly. Thanks for having me. I really, really appreciate it. Yes. And hopefully, I don't know, maybe maybe once once real life events come back, we can do like a live podcast kind of thing at the race. Or that something. would be so amazing. I'd love to share that with everybody. Thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. If you enjoyed this or any of our past episodes, do us a solid and leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts and check out our book, Becoming a Consummate Athlete, over at consummateathlete.com. Questions or comments? Find us over on Instagram at consummateathlete and we will see you next week.